You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. We love to uh, go through the books of the Bible here at Summit. I think that is just an awesome way of, of uh, studying the Word of God. Um, so yeah, let's uh, read the section or the passage that we have for today. Um, I hope you brought a Bible with you. If, if you didn't, totally fine. We, we're going to have it on the screens. Um, and if you actually, if you need a Bible, just let us know. We got Bibles. Um, this is a Bible-believing church, so we got Bibles. Um, so open up uh, God's Word to, to the book of James, chapter 1. We're going to read the very last section uh, in this chapter, so from um, 19 all the way to 27. So 19 to 27. Would you just stand with me as I read God's Word for, uh, for this morning? So James 1, 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Should I even continue? But we will go on. <laughs> but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious... If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this powerful and beautiful word. Lord God, help us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And for that, Lord God, we need you. For that, in order for that to happen in our hearts and in our lives, Lord God, we need the Holy Spirit to lead us, instruct us, um, and just help us be doers of the word. Would you please help each one of us here this morning that we would, as we hear your word, may we apply it to our lives and may we be doers of your word so that... We will be glorifying of you, and not only that, Lord God, that we would benefit from doing your word. And I pray this, Lord God, over every single person here, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the book of James, it's written by um, Jesus' kid brother. We usually tend to think of Bible teachers, uh, theologians, scholars as coming out of institutions and seminaries, right? Right? with formal education. That's not the situation with James. I call him, well, not me, but I got this from somewhere else. I call him the blue-collar scholar of the New Testament. Uh, he grows up in a small town, poor family peasant. His dad's name is Joseph. His mom's name is Mary. The Spirit of God is so strong in James that he grows up to serve his big brother, Jesus, 
as his Lord and Savior, and he writes this amazing book, obviously led by the Holy Spirit. Now, that wasn't the case from the beginning. That was not the case from the beginning. James did not understand or sympathize with the ministry of Jesus and was actually hostile towards it. I think we have pretty good evidence of this in in, in God's Word. However, in the book of Acts, we find a remarkable change in the life of James. He's a totally different man. He's actually identified as a prominent leader in the church at Jerusalem. How awesome is that? Well, that's good news. Let me just stop there for a second. I've said this before, but this is good news for us because I don't think most of us start with like just a solid and mature faith in Christ. We're like, wow, we, we get, you know, we receive Christ. We get fully, you know, into a body of believers. We serve. No, no, it takes time because we start with a small faith. And I, my prayer, and, and, I, and I hope that all of us, by the end of the book of James, if we start with a small faith, with a shaky faith, maybe you, have, you still have some questions about God, who he is, and about yourself. I pray that by the, by the end of the book of James, our faith would mature in Christ, just like James's did. So what we're finding ourselves studying today in this letter is the topic of faith and how we apply faith in different arenas of life in a very practical, practical way. And more specifically for today's passage, we're going to look at the following question. How does faith work when you are angry? How does faith work when you are angry? We're going to talk about some practical and some personal stuff today. You picked a good day to be at church. Probably some stuff that you don't necessarily want to even think about. Uh, because maybe you're ashamed of it. Maybe you're embarrassed of some stuff in your life. Maybe you're struggling with some stuff in your life. That's fine. This is a good place to be in. The good news is that God wants to heal us. I'll say that again. The good news is that God wants to heal us and God wants to deliver us so that we live differently so that we live more like his son, Jesus. You know, when God convicts us of sin, when God shows, you know, uh, your sin, analyzes your heart, searches your heart, and like, there you go, this is the real you. And you're like, oh, no. The point of that is not to condemn you. The point is to convict you that you will come to the cross and, and just be forgiven, confess your sin, be forgiven, and be to be changed. That's the whole point. And God will always give us the resources that are necessary to be changed. So there's no point in, or there's no, yeah, there's no point in being condemned. Just be convicted and let it do what it's supposed to do, drive you at the foot of the cross. Because that's what brings them glory, right? And that's what, you know, this is the kind of life that, that we flourish in. Anyways, as we get into these personal and practical matters, there are two things that I want us, I want you, I want us to be reminded of up front. And the first thing is that God is our Father. God is our Father. I mean, James is going to tell us that twice in this first chapter, twice, that God is our Father. God is your Father. God is my Father. And then he's going to tell us three times that we are his beloved. So he's our Father, and then three times he'll say, We are his beloved, right? That's very important to know as we're going to go through this passage because I think that at times this can be very convicting, very, very convicting. So we need to have this at the forefront of 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 our mind. That's God's heart for us today, but not only today, every single day. And so as we start today getting into the next section, verses 19 to 27, let's remember that the context in chapter 1 is the context of trials, We all have trials. We're all in something that is a struggle, a hardship, a difficulty, and it includes some pain, some suffering, some discomfort. 
That is the theme of James chapter 1, and it will continue. But James says in verse 2, just to kind of summarize a little bit, when you meet trials of various kinds, right? So we, we, we've all got trials. Some of, us, some of us are, some of these trials are physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, relational. And then he says in verse 12 that our trials can be an opportunity. I'm paraphrasing. He actually says, blessed is the man or the person who remains, what? Steadfast under trial, committed, faithful to God. Not perfect, not perfect, committed, right? Steadfast. So this is what James is going to say in our passage today. Let's, let me just give you a big, the big idea here. When we go through our trial, what usually happens, the pressure and the stress of our trial will, will trigger some emotion in us. We get emotional, but James is going to talk about a specific emotion. So let me just ask you this. What does your trial trigger in you? The reality is that someone or something in your trial triggers you. So the trial or the experience out there or around you leads to a response or some emotion in your heart. Let's read the first portion of our passage for today. Again, verses 19 and 20. And in the first point, we're going to have three main points. And the first main point we want to make today out of these two first verses is this. Be slow to anger like your father. Be slow to anger like your father. So again, 19 and 20. Let me just read it for us again. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, what James is saying here, church, is, is there's a trial out there. There's a trial around you. Someone or something triggers you, and you get emotional in here, in your heart. And usually that primary emotion that James mentions here is what? Anger. Anger. You're just frustrated. You're just agitated. Now let's, let's chat a bit about anger. Anger is a very important emotion because it reveals to us who and what we love. Who and what we love. We usually get angry about people and things we care about. Usually. Whether they're harmed or endangered or taken advantage of or used or abused or neglected. And when you're angry, it means that this is a person or a thing that is very treasured by you. They are important to you. In addition, when it comes to anger, anger is something we, we feel. We, we kind of know that it's an emotion. But at the same time, it's something that we do as well. So it's not only just a feeling, but it's something that we act on as well. And so James is going to say that our anger manifests itself through the words that we speak and through the actions that we take, that we choose. He says, quick to hear, slow to speak. So referring to words. And then in the next verse, he'll say, you know, put away all filthiness and wickedness, right? So referring to actions. There's some actions. Now, let's state the obvious here when we talk about anger. We have to ask, what does the Bible say about anger? Not culture, but what does the Bible say about anger? Because some of us have been told, I was told the wrong way, I've been told that there are good emotions and bad emotions, that anger is just a bad emotion. That's just not necessarily true. Some of us have been taught that holy people never get angry. If you get angry, you're not holy. You're out of the church. See ya. Or never feel, you know, the emotion of anger and most certainly wouldn't act on it. How dare you? 
But if you look at sin, if you look at injustice and evil and abuse, and there are some things in this world that are just evil, evil. And the truth is that if you don't feel angry at the evil in the world, you're actually not emotionally agreeing with God. Huh. Because anger can be a motivator. Can be. It can be a passionate igniter of action in our lives. And so the question is, is your anger good anger or bad anger? Which one is it? Is it the righteous anger that agrees with God, or is it the anger of men that, that does not produce the righteousness of God? Which one is it? So for the next few moments, um, let's just look at some triggers for unhealthy anger to better understand what James is talking about here in this passage. So triggers for unhealthy anger. Because sometimes this, this unhealthy anger that we feel and experience in life can, can be triggered by what? By entitlement. One of the things that is triggered by entitlement. We feel like we're, we're owed something. A lot of people are, this is them, right? We feel that we deserve something and everybody is obligated to serve me and serve us. And if we don't get it, well, we'll just be angry then and blow on everyone else. That's an unholy, ungodly anger. And sometimes unholy, ungodly anger is triggered by what? Selfishness. Oh boy, this is a big one. Oh my, this is where someone is inconveniencing us or annoying us. But let me tell you, you don't know how selfish you are until you get married. Jeez. <laughs> and you realize that this other person that now you call your wife or your spouse is going to take some of your time, some of your personal space, money, and energy. And it triggers anger in you and frustration because we're just selfish. Marriage is two selfish people, <laughs> just so you know, learning to serve and love one another. They're served by Jesus, right? We're learning to serve and love one another. And because we're selfish, it gets pretty ugly sometimes. This is the reality of life. Now, oftentimes, the frustrations and annoyances and emotional responses in marriage are totally out of selfishness. If you want to take it to the next level, ooh, feeling and experiencing anger in an unhealthy way, you just add children to that mix. Oh, boy. Sometimes you're like, wow, I had all this anger in me? Yep. <laughs> now, this would be a good time to note that this primary emotion of anger, it can manifest itself as disappointment as well. Right? So it's not just always, you know, punching, you know, holes through the wall. It's not just that. <laughs> Right? It's as, it can manifest itself as disappointment or hurt or frustration or annoyance or sometimes even fear. I don't have the time to get into that, but sometimes it can manifest itself even through fear. Now, probably the worst negative human expression of unhealthy anger comes out of what? Bitterness and unforgiveness. Bitterness and unforgiveness. Bitter people and unforgiving people, oh boy, stay away. <laughs> Stay away. When you are bitter and unforgiving towards someone, everything they do triggers you. Everything. Just hearing their name triggers you. Just seeing their face on social media triggers you. And so you and I need to make sure that our anger is not triggered by bitterness and unforgiveness. Because these two things are demonic strongholds. Demonic strongholds. What we need to do instead 
is forgive people as God has forgiven us. We've heard that before. That's why Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. What he doesn't say is don't get angry. He doesn't say that. What he says is you're, you're going to get angry. And when you do get angry, it's a powerful motivator and it can lead you into good action or bad action. Now, choose to use it in a constructive way, not a destructive way. If your anger, in your anger, do not sin. And what can happen when we're angry, we're more prone to temptation and sin, right? Because we're more frustrated in that moment. It's really hard for us broken people to navigate through anger and not sin. Really, really hard. That's why it's easier for us to just say, ah, it's all bad. No, it's not. No, it's not. But the way we deal with it, because we're broken, we're going we're gonna to spin it in a way that's very, very sinful. Now, let me ask you this. Does God ever get angry? Yeah, <laughs> he does. The Bible says he's slow to anger. And that's why James says in our passage, be slow to anger. Because our Father in heaven is slow to anger. So emulate him, copy him. James actually quotes Exodus 34 on this one. All right, I, I, homework for, for home. Read Exodus 34, beautiful passage. God speaks about his attributes and it comes out. He's loving, merciful, but then he says, I'm slow to anger. But let me ask you this. If God gets angry, is it godly to sometimes be angry? Sure. But keep in mind that he is slow to anger, and we ought to do the same. If you're always angry, you're not godly. There's something sinful in there, because you should be slow to anger. Now, if you're never angry, that's not godly either, because God gets angry too, and we ought to follow his example. But this is how we know the difference between the unrighteous anger of men and the righteous anger of God. And it's simply in asking this one question. Are we angry about the things that God is angry about? Are you angry about the things that, is, that God is angry about? And see, sometimes we're angry and we need to ask God, are you angry, God? Are, are you angry at this? Or is it just me? Or is it just sin? Does this upset you, God? And do you know how we know if God is angry in a certain situation? Just poof, so amazing. But we see it in the Bible. That's how we know. It's not this trick where only some people get the No, no, no. It's actually in the Bible. And if we study our Bibles and if we, we know God's word, we would know the specific things God gets angry about. If God is slow to anger, then you and I, by God's grace, need to learn to be slow to anger. So God does get angry. But let me ask you this. Does Jesus ever get angry? Yeah. Yeah. There's an occasion... In Mark 3, 5, where Jesus is angry and grieved at a bunch of religious people because they got upset and angry at Jesus for wanting to heal a guy on Sabbath. Like, really, guys? <laughs> so Jesus gets super angry at them for being ridiculous. Jesus gets angry at man-made human religion and tradition. So if you want to know one thing that God gets angry of, well, religion. Religion, he gets angry at that. And, and man-made human religion and tradition. Now, religion is... Just a, a side note, religion is human beings making rules to control and punish one another through fear. But a relationship with Christ, what we actually preach here at Summit and hopefully we live, is love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, speaking truth, and a changed life out of love that comes from God. 
Jesus gets angry when religious people get in the way of helping hurting people. In addition, there's, another, uh, there's, there's one other occasion when, when, where Jesus gets angry. Actually, a few more, but one that I want to mention. When his good friend Lazarus dies, and when Jesus hears the news in, in John 11, the Bible says that Jesus was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Interesting. Now, the idea is that Jesus gets angry about death because sin is what leads to death. And when God made the world, there was no sin and there was no death. So when, when he sees sin bring death to people that he loves, it angers him. It angers him. If somebody you love gets diagnosed with cancer and you're angry, but, but you do not sin by you know, starting to cuss or blaming God or whatever reaction to anger that, that's sinful, you have the heart of God. You have the heart of God. Sin and death hurts people that God loves. And religion does not allow the help to go to people as is needed. And so what angers Jesus and God is religion, sin, and death. And all of these harm people that God loves. So bottom line, to bottom line this, is this why you're angry too? At religion, sin, and death? Anything outside of this, oof, I don't know. The point is this, if you're always angry, there's a problem. If you're never angry, there's a problem. If you're slow to anger, you're probably walking in the spirit. And if religion, sin, and death frustrate you, you're sharing the heart of God. Now the key is this. This is going to sting a little bit. If you're going to be angry at sin, you've got to start by being angry at your own. Shots fired towards me first. So what we're talking about here is this. There's a trial around you, and it triggers emotions in you. And oftentimes that dominant emotion is anger, as James says. But anger is not just what we feel. It's what we do with the words that we speak and with the actions that we choose. And so what James is talking about here, he's going to talk about our words, and he's going to talk about speaking out of anger. Unlike the day of James where you have to work a little bit, you know, to hear what people are saying, it's funny. Today, you need to work really hard not to hear what other people are saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> because it's on your phone. And it's everywhere. And everyone is angry. I mean, angry people on Facebook, angry people on Twitter, angry people at the grocery stores, Instagram, YouTube, every platform, online or, or real life. People are angry. It's incredible. It's an onslaught towards the soul. And what you have online is a bunch of angry people yelling, yelling at each other. That's what you have. Everyone's talking. No one is listening. It's the inverse, complete inverse of James, where he says, slow to speak, quick to listen. Online, it's no, quick to speak, slow to listen, and get angry for ungodly reasons, and sin a lot as you get angry. Boy, have we twisted this. Someone once said that God gave us one mouth and two year, ears because that's, the, that's a good ratio for living. I thought that was kind of cute. It's a good motto for life. I mean, we should do twice as much listening as we do talking. So again, James says you will have a trial around you. This trial will trigger emotion in you. 
perhaps even anger, and you'll want to communicate and react out of that anger. You'll want to say stuff. You'll want to express yourself. But oftentimes when we do, it's unwise, and it's unhelpful, and it's unholy because it comes out as, and there are three, really quickly, just to mention it to you, three major categories that anger comes out, and you know it's just unhealthy, and it's not the righteous anger of God. Slender, lying, and gossip. Slender, lying and God. That's how anger comes out a lot of times. We're not going to look into that, but these are, if you may, the fruits of anger, or at least some of the fruits of anger. In addition, what James is alluding to when he says, be quick to hear and slow to speak, is this. Before you talk to people, talk to God. Now, and we'll see in just a few moments where this comes from, because I don't want to just say it for myself. But the point is this, sometimes you, you will have to have hard conversations with people. And a lot of times you'll move towards that without even, you know, talking to God. And you're just going to vomit all over people. You're going to mess up. You're going to offend. You're going you're gonna to just mess up your life as well, right? So then have that hard conversation with God first. And have Him instruct you on how to have those hard conversations with people. Because God can take your anger. People cannot. People usually cannot. So there's a trial around you in your life. It triggers emotion in you, and then you want to speak. You want to act. And so out of this trial, the trigger comes, and the emotion follows, and then the emotion will cause you to say some words and act on some things. So James is going to address our behavior next. And the second main point that we want to make is be doers of the word, not just hearers. The first point was be slow to anger like your father. And the second point that we want to make from uh, the following five verses is be doers of the word and not just hearers. Let me just read the passage, read the verses um, 21 to 25. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And here we go. And be doers of the word and not hearers only Deceiving yourselves. There, there you have it. And he will say it again. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks in t- intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Man, that's good. Well, here's the sequence and the progression again. Trial around you, trigger, you get emotional, you want to say something, you want to do something, but the first thing you need to do, according to James, is what? Shut up. Be quiet. He says, be quiet, listen, and start with the Word of God. If I were to simplify this message, it would be this. Just shut up. Just don't say anything. Just be quiet. Listen. And start with the word of God. That's it. We can just go home now. If we were to apply this in our life, oh boy, the world would be a better place. (laughs) Our families, our marriages would be just better places, better platforms. We need to meet with God before we meet and talk to people. You hear from God before you speak to people. That's what he's saying. And what James is talking about here is basically this. Listening is an art form. That is required in order to be a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ. Huh. 
Check this out. If you don't listen, you're not going to learn. And faith comes by hearing the word of God, the Bible says. I'm talking about a deeper kind of listening here, church, than just opening your ears for information. And as you listen to the word of God, your mind starts to what? To transform. You start to think what God thinks. You start to feel what God feels, even feeling. Because what happens when there's a trial out there around you in your life and then a trigger, an emotional response like, well, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. We have to go to God and ask, hey, God, what should I be thinking right now? What should I be feeling right now? And, and, and also, what should I be saying? What should I be doing, God? There's so much in that one conversation with God before you go and, you know, vomit on everyone else. God can change your heart. God does that because prayer is not necessarily first for God. You know, God is not necessarily a vending machine to give us what we want. Sometimes he does. But first is for, for us to realign our life, our will with God's will. That's what prayer does. So we have to go to God, right? And so you should and we should study the Bible. But just remember that you need to let the Bible study you. And I think this is what James is saying. Meaning, let it analyze you. Let the Bible, as you read it, analyze you and let it convict you. Let it change you. Let it mold you. Let it speak to you. Don't just read it for just this mental check off. You know, I checked the box, you know, of, of, of reading my Bible today and I'm done for. No, no, don't do that. The problem with many people is that they study the Bible for information, not for transformation. And that's a problem. We know the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. So all you're going to do is just going to puff up. Oh, look at me. I know some more information about God. Well, whoop-de-doo. Good for you, right? But love builds up. And humility does a lot. And so what James is doing here, he uses this analogy of looking at your face in a mirror. I love this analogy because it's so relevant. And what a mirror does, it reveals who we are. That's what it does. And so you open the word of God and you're like, okay, I'm angry and I'm, I'm, it's not a righteous anger because <laughs> I feel it all the time and I know where it ends up. I'm upset, God, and I'm, I'm about to blow up. I'm making some bad decisions, but I see it now. This is who I really am because you're showing it to me and it's so, it just hit me like a ton of bricks and I so desperately need your help now, God. Instead, what happens with religious people, they read the Bible not as a mirror, but as binoculars. And James refers to them in verse 24 as the people who look in the mirror, but they forget how they look. Now, these are the people that murdered Jesus. They actually quoted verses from the Bible to murder God. And what they were doing is they were crit criticizing Jesus' life rather than examining their own life. And the result was they were deceived. They were deceived. And James uses this language over and over and over in our chapter, chapter 1. Religious people who use the, the Bible as binoculars for others rather than mirrors for themselves to see themselves, they're phonies and fake and they are deceived. Is that the category that we fall in, though? And when we call ourselves Christian and we... All we do is read the Bible for information and not transformation and not looking at the word as we would look in a mirror to examine ourselves so we can be changed. We're pretty religious and phony as well. And we're deceived. 
No difference. Very, very interesting. But the American Bible Society did a large data survey not too long ago. And they came up with something called the rule of four. The rule of four. It was an unexpected result. But what they found was if you are a Christian and if you are in God's word and God's word is in you. And you're in God's word one to three days a week. So one to three days a week. It will have negligible effect on your behavior. That's what they found out. Negligible effect on your, uh, you know, your emotional, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. But once you're in God's word, and God's word is in you, four days a week, all the variables change. All the data improves. Your emotional health, your mental health, your addictions, your relationships, everything improves. The point is this. When God's word is in the majority of your week, your week begins to change. Your character begins to change. And what James is saying here is this. When there's a trial around you, there's an emotion in you, you need more of God's word. That's what he's saying. Let's just bottom line it. And just like you feed your body, just like I feed my body on a daily basis, and let's say you're working you know, hard at a job, you're an athlete maybe, you need more calories because you're burning more fuel in your body, when you're in a trial, that same thing is true of your soul. You're burning more spiritual energy. And Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Simply put, you're in a trial, you need more Bible. You're in a trial, you need more Bible. When you're in a trial, you need more sustenance and nourishment. This is why Jesus tells Peter, my, feed my sheep, Peter. And it's not to be junk food either. You talk to pastors and some will tell you that through COVID, it's been a hard two years. But some will testify and say that our people want longer sermons through books of the Bible. Not everyone, some. A trend that's never been before, or at least in the last few years anyways. Their appetite has changed from just a pithy little encouragement through the trials from the last couple of years. And the point is this, when things get darker, God's people need to go deeper. That's just the reality. Additionally, there was a data survey that was just done recently, like I'm talking about like probably two months ago, and it was reported recently that younger generations that pretty much live online are struggling big time with mental health and anxiety. Well, we kind of knew this, right? But that's not, that's not the point here. But these younger generations that pretty much live online that call themselves Christian are the ones who are asking for deeper and longer Bible teaching because their souls are malnourished. Huh. So part of the reason that we go through the books of the Bible, church, is that we want us to be healthy. Is that okay? We want us to be healthy. The reason why our sermons are a bit longer sometimes, I mean, it takes a little while to come to a deep understanding of the heart and mind of God, and some things don't fit in 140 characters. And what James is saying is this, open the Bible up and study it and eat it and learn to be in it always and then let it examine you so that God reveals to you who you are so he can change you, so you would surrender to him so that he can change you. 
Isn't it interesting that James doesn't say, if you hear the word of God, if you, if you hear the word of God, you are automatically blessed. He doesn't say that. But if you do the word of God, you will be blessed. Verse 24, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, I didn't write it. It's right here. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. How interesting. James here is quoting his big brother Jesus in Luke 11, 28, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it or obey it. See, it's fine to have a good sermon. It's actually recommended. But you need to do what the word of God says. When God speaks to you and speaks to me, I need to hear, not only hear, but act on it, apply it to my life. In the same way, it's good to have a gym membership if you what? If you go to the gym. <laughs> We've all done that so many times. It's great to buy vitamins if you what? If you eat the vitamins. A seatbelt is awesome if you buckle it. The same way the word of God is amazing if you obey it. And I mentioned this last Sunday, but God doesn't just bless people. God blesses people who place themselves under his word in obedience. That's who God blesses. Big difference. If you're married and the husband and the wife will commit to obey, you know, the word of God, you have a 100% guaranteed success rate for your marriage. How amazing is that? But if just one, one spouse says, nah, I don't Chances drop significantly of that marriage having, you know, a good rate for success. How? Just think about that for a second. Because God's way always works, and God blesses those who are seeking his will and his ways. But do not expect to be blessed if you don't obey God's word. Actually, in our day and age, I feel like Christians don't even know the word of God, let alone to apply it to their life or to obey it. So the question is not, are you hearing the word? Are you coming under its authority and are you obeying it? That's the question that we're asking today. So trial, trigger, emotion, word, deed, then you look at the result, the consequence of this cycle of events. And James is going to end with, uh, with this. What are the results when the trial comes and your emotion is triggered, words come out, and then, you, and then you take action to what are the consequences of the cycle of events? And that's exactly where James, where he's going to end this chapter, chapter 1. Let's read the last section for today, verses 26 and 27. And the last point that we want to make is this. Christian life is about holiness and helping others. Christian life is about holiness and helping others. Let me just read the last two verses. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not brittle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What James is saying is this, your, if your spiritual commitments do not result in two things, it's all garbage. We're wasting our time. If your walk with God does not result in two things, these major categories, let's just, let's just go home. We're wasting our time. And the two things that he talks about are, I believe, very obvious. And here they are. Does it help others and does it make you holy? 
Does it help others? And does it make you holy, set apart for God? And so the question is, is your relationship with God working itself out so that as you're looking at people, you're deeply convicted and then you act to help them out? Is that, is that your religion? Is that your faith right there? Now, let me just say this as well. Oftentimes, the people that anger you the most are the people that God has called you to minister to. So you can be angry at them or you can try to help them out. And what James is talking about here are those who have the greatest need. That's what he gives us. The example of those that have the greatest need. I mean, widows and orphans in that day had no legal standing or financial status. In our day, I don't know, this would be new immigrants who are just getting settled into the country. This would be single parents. This would be widows, people who are in tough places. And let me just say Right now, a lot of people are in a tough spot, in a tough place, and we have plenty of angry people yelling, but we need more helpful people serving. I mean, you have a choice. You could spend all your time online arguing with people you'll never meet, (laughs) or you can put your phone down, lift your eyes up, find some people who are hurting, and help them. It's real practical, isn't it? This goes for me too. I'm preaching to myself first. This can be as simple as, okay, Lord, where are my appointments today? Lord, please help me. I, you're you're going to put somebody in front of me. I know that. How do I help them? Buy them groceries. I don't know. Be practical. Pray for them. Encourage them. Have a cup of coffee with them and encourage them. Maybe it's just listening to some people. Send them a scripture or, or maybe just checking in. I don't know. What would you like people to do for you if you're alone or, you know, in a trial? The other point that he's driving at is, so not only helping people, the other point that he's driving at is holiness. Holiness. And what happens is we have a trial, we get triggered, we get emotional, we say and do things that don't make us holy and are no help for others. If that's the case, that is a worthless result, he says. Then we've got to rethink the entire sequence that James has taken us through. Interesting thing to note, when James is talking about holiness, he uses sin in synonymous terms with stains. Sin and stain. Sin and stain synonymously. And moms, you know very well that if your kid spills something on their white shirt, the longer you wait to clean it up, the worse it gets, right? Yeah. So the key is if you spill something, if you stain something on a white shirt... You need to get it cleaned up as soon as possible because the longer it sits there, the deeper, the deeper it settles in, right? Sin is like that in our life, the same way. It starts to stain the longer you let it settle. And so many Christians have many sins that have been staining their white clothes. As a side note, no wonder we live such powerless lives because sin cripples us. This this settling of sin, this staining of sin cripples us. And it's not about being perfect. No one, no, no, no. It's not about being perfect. It's about dealing with your sin. Resolve your sin at the foot of the cross. Jesus made a way. Taking it at the cross and confessing it to Jesus and surrendering it to Jesus. So you can be freed from the effect of the staining of this sin, of this stronghold in our life. 
Now, what I love in this phrase, and this is, I think, mind-bending, a mind-bending concept, and it points to the gospel. What James doesn't say is, make yourself holy. Make yourself pure. Undefiled and unstained in the sight of God. He doesn't say that. He says to keep yourself from being unstained. The difference between making yourself and keeping yourself is realizing Jesus has already made it, made you clean and forgave you and cleansed you and made you holy. And this is where Jesus not only died on the cross to forgive your sin, but he died on the cross to cleanse you, to cleanse me. To quote James 1, he says, you are pure and undefiled before God. Why do you think? Because Jesus died in your place. And Jesus offers this life to everyone in this gift of forgiveness. Not only that, but the gift of being cleansed, of being stain-free. Not to have that, you know, that stronghold just, just keeping you powerless. Now, let me remind us again of this amazing truth that in the sight of God, you are what did I say at the beginning? You are beloved by God. Okay, so what happened on the cross then? Because that's how we're beloved, through Christ, through what he has done for us. We came into God's family. But what happened on the cross? Well, Jesus not only took our sin and forgave us of it, but he took our stain. He cleansed us. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive this home, and I'm going to say it a hundred times because we need to hear it. Many Christians don't know this, but this is the doctrine of expiation. It's the part that Jesus cleansed us on the cross it says second corinthians 5 21 that god made jesus who knew no sin to become sin that in him in him what we might become the righteousness of god that in him in christ we might become in right standing with a holy and a perfect god which cannot stand sin but now because of this righteousness from christ we can have a relationship, not only just standing in God's, but we can have a relationship being a son and a daughter in the family of God. How amazing is that? So, not only did Jesus take our sin, but he placed upon us his right standing before a holy and a perfect God. Absolutely amazing. So now, you are seen as pure and undefiled and clean in the sight of God. How amazing is that? There are Christians who are forgiven who are in Christ, but they, and they belong to Jesus, but they're stuck in some pattern of sin, and they just cannot get out. Under a trial, with a trigger and an emotional response, they say and do things that create a negative result and bring pain and harm, not only to their lives, but the lives of their families and everyone around them. They're just stuck, and they don't know how to get out. Am I really a Christian? Does God love me? Uh, you know, is the Bible really true? Do I have the Holy Spirit in me? What's going on? And let me explain this struggle briefly. And then the solution, and at the same time, we'll summarize James 1 as well. The brain science would tell us that we basically have two brains. That we have two brains. I'll call it the old brain and the new brain. When you have a trial and a trigger, and then a response pattern with a result once you go through that process, it becomes habituated like muscle memory in the brain, okay? So it lives in the old part, old part of the brain now. Now, how many of you, the trial that you're in, it triggers you and you just become somebody that you hate, somebody that you cannot control, 
Like, I'm just yelling at my wife over and over again. Every time this happens, I don't know what to do. You do it over and over again. What the heck is going on? That's the old brain. That's the old brain. It's an old pattern. You just do it without even thinking about it, right? That's the old you, or the Bible would say, you know, the old self, right? Put off the old, right? That's what the Bible would say. And then the new brain is where we learn new information. It's where we make new decisions. And so what happens is once we have a a habit loop, it then transfers and resides in the old brain to free up space in the new brain to learn new things. I'll give you an example. So this morning, you got up and you brushed your teeth. Well, I hope you did. But most of us do that. You brush your teeth not out of the new brain, but out of the what? The old brain. Because we've been doing it for so long that we just kind of go through the motions, right? So the old brain is overseeing the brushing of the teeth so that the new brain now can process all the new decisions, all the new information that you need to make today, right? What happens when a trial comes our way? An emotion is triggered, usually, in James' example, is anger. And then we're tempted to say some things and do some things that will hurt us and hurt those around us, and over time, thus will become an unconscious loop. You just do it because you've all, always done it. But if you want to form, if you want to create a new response habit in the new part of the brain, and this is actually pretty funny, but scientists will say that it requires two things mindfulness and meditation they say that because they don't know god and so mindfulness they'll say you just need to stop and think about it just stop and center yourself just stop and think about it and what james says is no don't do that what you need is to bring god's mind into the situation that's what you need you need more than three pounds of fallen meat between your ears, your brain. You need God to show up through his word, and you need to get the mind of Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. And it was very clear today. This is where we are transformed by the renewing of the mind. That's, that's what the Bible, this process that the scientists are explaining, this is what the Bible is saying. This is the renewing of the mind process. This is where we take every thought captive before Christ. And by the way, The counterfeit of prayer is meditation, right? They'll say meditation. But what that means is we've got an even greater solution than meditation and mindfulness, don't we? We have one, church, we have one that works every single time. If we're ready and willing to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that is. We have a solution that works every single time. We don't need to just have our minds centered through some weird spiritual exercises, we can have God's mind. (laughs) We, We don't need to just meditate. We can actually pray and invite the Holy Spirit, the power of God, to show up and to re hardwire our brains to create new neural pathways so that we choose new habits, so that we choose new ways that honor God and benefit us. So James says, trial comes, There's a trigger, usually anger. He says if our response is the anger of men, and then if we allow ourselves to say some stuff and do some stuff that's sinful, if that's our response, then these are the actual words that James uses. If that's our response, he says we become double-minded. Double-minded. He uses that word twice in in James chapter 1. What he's literally saying is you got the old brain and you got the new brain. 
oh, wow, James. And in that moment, when you have a trial and you're triggered, you're emotional, what you're doing is you're literally bouncing from the old brain to the new brain. Old brain, new brain, you're double-minded, he says. Am I going to go with the old habit now? Am I going to still yell at my wife as, I, as I've done it for a thousand times? Am I going to say and do what I've always done? Or will I say or do something different now based on obedience to the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit? Theologians and pastors have done some linguistic studies that would indicate, check this out, So I was just so excited at this. They've done some linguistic studies that would indicate that this concept of double-mindedness never appeared in any literature until James 1. <laughs> if that's true, and it seems like it is, James created a brand new word to explain the believer who needs to change a bad habit into a new habit, who needs to have his mind renewed. He literally said, you're double-brained. <laughs> Our brilliant scientist, James the blue-collar scholar. Wow. The brain science comes along 2,000 years later and says, you know what, guys? You're double-brained. We know that already. <laughs> we, we know that. Thanks, science people, but we know someone who made the brain even better and wrote a book, and he tells us that we're double-brained already. We just need to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit because he already made a way for us to be renewed in our mind. How beautiful is that? So how do you have a new habit loop in response to a trial? How do you, and I'm ending, basically what we're asking, how do you change the way you do things? Or how do you renew your mind? That's what we're basically asking. And these are literally James' words Ready for this? This is what he's saying. If you obey the word of God, it will literally rehardwire your brain. That's it. I've said all of that to say this, that if you obey the word of God, it will literally rehardwire your brain. That's it. You make a new decision to obey God's word, and you start with that right now, not tomorrow, right now, today. And the Holy Spirit helps you with that. And then from the new brain... Being faithful today and then tomorrow, it just becomes part of your life and it goes, it transfers into your old brain and you do it all the time. I, I used to always yell at my wife, right? But now, no, no, no. Now I pray for her all the time. I used to always get really get angry and bitter and now I forgive and love my enemies. It starts in the new brain and then it becomes habit forming the renewing of the mind. Poof. Let me just summarize chapter 1 in one minute or one and a half. And the first things first. This, what I'm going to say next, is the linchpin of our Christian living, of chapter 1, of, I think, of the whole Bible. Check this out. And this is what James says in chapter 1. We're summarizing. Find your joy in God. That's what he says. Find your joy in God. As you go through the trial, fight to delight in the Lord, because that's where life comes from. And then he says, rest in the truth that you are loved by God. We said it even today. It comes, it just pops out. And then receive the leading and the help of the Holy Spirit without, without which you can't change anything. What else does he say? He says, then ask God for wisdom every time you need it. Remember last time? 
And then today, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And then as you get deeper in the word, do what it says. The result of all of that, he says, steadfastness. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But, 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 but that doesn't mean perfect. He means you're an adult, spiritually speaking now. You're mature in Christ now. No, you're not perfect. No, 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 no. Only Christ is perfect. We're going to be perfect in heaven, not, not here, not on this side of eternity. But, but, but we're, we're mature, and that's what we're going for, right? And when all is said and done, you're going to stand before him, and he's going to put a new eternal crown of life on your head, verse 12. That's chapter 1. Would you stand with me, please? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.